Okay, it's February the 28th, and this is number 20, uh, Gospel of Mark. So welcome back. Thanks for being here. I uh, hope that we don't uh, kind of spin our wheels too much, because if you're uh, on the listserv, you're getting these blogs every day that are all about Mark, so hopefully they're not too repetitive or boring. And Jenny, you probably already know what I think we should talk about, <laughs> but that's okay. Um, we did talk about the parable of the unmerciful servant last week, which was great. The morning group didn't. The morning group really just, uh, we, we, we didn't talk a lot about Mark per se, except why this business about the gospel secret. We spent about an hour and a half on that this morning uh, without actually reading Mark super carefully, but it was a really fantastic conversation. You never know how these things are going to go. The question really was, why does Jesus speak in parables? And I, and I think this is a really good thing for us to get our heads around um, in Mark. Mark is a little bit uh, different uh, from the other Gospels because in Mark, there's this bit about the wine into the wineskins, which is often lost on us because, of course, we put wine in bottles and we have cork, and they had no, no cork. <laughs> What they had was leather bags, and, you know, leather will stretch uh, about one time, and then the next time it needs to stretch, it'll just sort of break, or the seaming will break. This is sort of how that goes. We, we don't do that, but, but that's sort of the clear meaning, you know. So if you were to take wine that's going to stretch and put it into something that's already stretched, it really just has no room, and, and the whole thing's going to give way. You're going to lose the wine. You're going to lose the skin. The same thing with a, with a patch, because much more so then than even now, your garments are hand-woven. And, and now, you know, we, we buy like pre-shrunk shrunk T-shirts at my house, but I even remember in the 80s, you'd buy this shirt, <laughs> you'd put it in the dryer, and then you'd give it to your child, <laughs> right? So we've like figured out how to pre-stretch stuff, but imagine then, you know, people who are not using commercial looms, they're just, they're just kind of pushing down shuttlecocks with their hands, uh, that this is a major problem. And, and so Mark uses that really in relationship to parables and the gospel secret. And, and it may not be apparent, but part of what I think Mark is trying to say with, with the parable bit and the gospel secret, you know, where Jesus tells everybody not to tell, is um, that we usually miss the whole point. <laughs> so... The reason I think that the parables are there and the parables are difficult to understand is because of the following. I don't know if this blog came out yet or not, but it will. Um, you know, there's this, um, did it stop me if you've already read this? There's a, there's a um, cognitive neuroscience called Jean Piaget that's, that's reading. Did that blog come out already? It's helpful to see the diagram, though. Jean Piaget is grading IQ tests back in, like, the 1880s in Bern in Switzerland, and he noticed that children are uh, missing the same question, not depending on where they're from or where their education is or how much money their parents have, but how old they are. And one of the classic examples, and if you've been around ch young children, you hopefully you know this to be true, is that if you have a cylinder that's tall and skinny, and next to it you have a cylinder that is short but really quite wide, you can show a three-year-old, you can take water from the pitcher and pour it into a measuring cup that's one cup. You can pour it in there, and you can pour one into the tall one, and then the child can watch you pour the identical measure into the, the fat one, and when you ask the child which one has more water, 
of course, they'll tell you the tall one because it looks higher. Now, they just watched you use an identical measure, and there's no pause, there's no time, time lapse or anything. And Jean Piaget says it's, they didn't miss it because they were undereducated. They missed it because their brain hadn't developed that way. And so what he goes on to do is posit these stages at which you're able to think increasingly abstractly. So this is a problem like conservation of matter, conservation of volume. I'm pretty sure this is why they serve you cocktails in a conical cup because it has like one-third the volume of a cylinder, but it looks like a big drink. You know, I mean, <laughs> this, is, this is sort of the deal. Adults don't do well with this stuff either. If I ask you what's a better deal, I mean, this, is, this is always kills people with geometry. You know, what's a better deal to... Um, make sure I get this right, <laughs> or I'm going to mess it up. Is it better to get two... Um, 10-inch pizzas for $9.99, 10-inch pizzas, or is it better to get, let's see, I'm going to mess this up, a 16-inch pizza for $9.99? Well, two 10-inch pizzas is clearly better, except it isn't. It's, it's a smaller quantity um, by about, you know, 14 square inches or whatever it is that you're doing. And so, so that's an extremely diminished value. Y Adults are like, that cannot be true. There are two 10-inch pizzas, and there is a 16-inch pizza, and if you put 10 and 10 over 16, it would cover the diameter. Of course, the area is smaller. So, we, I mean, we just don't always think logically. Is, that is this okay to say? Uh, I can't tell you how many students missed that on the test after we'd done that same problem in class. Um, and, 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 and this is really what Piaget had to say, not just that these stages, but how do we transmigrate through stages? Of course, our brain has to develop, but there's this process we go through where you wake up and you've got equilibrium. This is your schema, the way you look at the world. I, you may not love the world, but you just, you kind of know what to expect, right? The sun's going to be up, it's going to be humid. In Houston, the weather could be dramatically different tomorrow than it is today. We don't always love that, but we just know that. And, and, and maybe let's just go back into, say, the 1880s when Jean Piaget was grading tests. Maybe in your equilibrium, you have the assumption that black people are illiterate, all of them, because they're an inferior species. I didn't think this is a stretch to say people thought that that was part of their equilibrium. Sometimes you c encounter new information that is information that is not in line with your equilibrium. Like, it directly challenges it. So let's pretend you've encountered Frederick Douglass, who appears to be literate. I mean, you can't vouch for his literacy. That's difficult to do, but appears to be literate. And then the question is, what do you do with the new information? Because you had this strong belief, and now here's a contrary piece of evidence. So Jean Piaget says, basically, we have two kind of choices. They're not always chosen, but we have two responses. One is that we assimilate the information into our equilibrium, which really means we change or make an exception or anomaly of the information that's challenging so that we don't actually have to change how we think. So we say, oh, he's not actually literate, he just memorized that. It's real, real possible, right? Real possible. And then we can go back into thinking just black people are illiterate. You see, nothing changed. Crisis averted. The other response, uh, again, this is not even always chosen, is what he says, is that we could accommodate our entire equilibrium 
around the new information. Which would mean saying, oh, geez, I was wrong, so black people can be literate. And now then you arrive at a new way of viewing the world. Now you might say, Mike, that's just a small little tidbit, right? That's just like one card, one switch that's flipped. So accommodation is really not that big of a deal. Except it is a big deal because um, if black people can be literate, that means they can be educated. And then you start to wonder, are they, do they only worth five-eighths of a vote of a white person? Or... Geez, golly, you know, does a black man with the same educational credentials as a white man really deserve only 90% of the pay? Y you see how this starts to kind of spiral out of control? And if black people get that, then what about Asian people and Filipino people? Right, so once one card flips, it sort of does set, set, does, can, should, set off this domino of, well, who else? Who else? Does that, does that sort of make sense? So the accommodation thing isn't just one small bit. It, it, it really is a change in worldview. It's not like putting on cheaters. It's like getting a new lens. Does that sort of make sense? And I'm positive this is what Mark is saying, is that we try to do that with the gospel. We try to assimilate it. Most of us approach, including me, most of us approach Jesus, Bible, church, etc. as, hey, there's a way that I could augment part of my life that's missing. I'll take that. Instead of, I've got to change everything in relationship to this new information. Everything. I can leave no stone unturned. I think that's why parables are difficult, because accommodation is difficult. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I'm positive. And you know what's a great story is the one that comes in John's gospel. So we'll talk about it more fully in two weeks, right? And, and this, I think, is a really great sermon that you'll hear after Easter. I just have to do it every year, frankly. Um, the women come to the tomb to mourn the dead Jesus because they sure loved the historical one, the one who walked around and taught, you know, and challenged their thinking. They loved that one. And so they go, and, and, and then there's the resurrected Jesus in front of them. They don't even recognize him because they're looking to do this. <laughs> and they, they, they so much don't recognize him that they think he's the hired help. They think he's the gardener. You know the guy that mows your grass for like $25 a week? <laughs> they, they think Jesus is the, the lawn care. They just can't see him. And then Mary holds on to him, and Jesus says, let me go, but you don't hold on to me. <laughs> you don't assimilate me, you accommodate me. And a lot of times, we're really interested in doing what Mary was doing, holding on to Jesus she knew, which is, of course, the dead one. Now, the risen Christ is different than the one she knew. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm confident that a lot of times, when we're really scared to think a new way is because we might lose our Jesus. The Jesus we might lose is the dead one. And thinking in new ways might guide us to the risen one. 
I like that sermon. I think it's pretty sweet. <laughs> you know, I mean, but I want to tell you it's really challenging, even, even though I said that, it's really challenging for me to live into because we haven't been formed that way. How do you form children to constantly accommodate themselves to the gospel? There is something interesting about children. Um, on that note, children find it much easier than adults to accommodate their worldview to fit new information. Have you noticed that? It's because they have less of the burden of experience, I think, and they're more prone, frankly, to extreme thinking, which allows accommodation to happen more quickly. We love that our children have big hearts, but, you know, as parents, we often talk them out of it a little bit, right? Like, if you give, well, if you give everything away, you wouldn't, no one's just going to have anything for yourself, which is a great point, right? It's a great point, but we, 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 we ameliorate this, and of course, as adults, we don't live in a black and white world, however much we think we do. We live in a world that's full of shades of gray, and that makes accommodation really, really difficult. The black and white world is much easier to accommodate. Well, I think it is, you, you know, because you didn't have to do really much thinking. You just, you just do what you're told, and, and that's, that's easy. By the way, the churches that tend to be growing in the United States emphasize black and white thinking. Sorry, they do. That's growing. That's growing. Because I think life is so unsure, people don't want religious uncertainty to, to add to it. I'm just honest about that. I don't mean those places are bad. I just mean I think this stuff is really difficult. So when you read a parable by Mark and you think, golly, like, why is that so difficult? It's because that is so difficult. Think through that thing about forgiveness we talked about last week, right? I mean, Jesus says, you do it seven times seven. You do it perfection unlimited. So you know that. And then the story illustrates that you don't do it. And how many of you hold grudges against yourself? And how many of you hold grudges against other people? And think about how difficult this is because in the wake of the Florida shooting, right, all the focus, we understand why, is on the victims. It's almost like Jesus is trying to get us to consider that the shooter himself is a victim. I know that sounds really crazy. And what about his mama and dad? And, and, what, and what about him? And you know, this is one of those things, uh, I'm not going to talk politics here. I'm going to say what's interesting is that we've got this crisis. And what we want to do is we want to look at the crisis and make it come down to gun control. That it just fix that, that it fix everything. And we don't want to talk about things like mental health. We don't want to talk about that. Because uh, that's ambiguous, you know, but if we just lock up the guns, problem solved, probably not. So we're prone to extreme, and, and that's the other problem, right? Mental health has no silver bullet. There's no guarantee that X hours of therapy or in a residential treatment facility or access to medication. It's too ambiguous. It's difficult to accommodate ourselves to those challenges. So what we do is we just pick one little thing and pretend that if we just solved that, everything would go away. I'm being really, really preachy, but I think Mark is. I mean, I think this is what the gospel's about. Not settling for that one shred, but trying to reorient ourselves. It doesn't matter what the social reality is. I mean, 
my my 403b is run by the church pension group and it made 10 percent interest last year that's pretty darn good you know it's really good positive not all that money was through just social investment i mean i don't know how to find those so at the end of the day you know what i do is i let them manage my money which is what we do because this is really difficult I don't like Walmart. I believe they have unjust hiring practices. I do. I shop at Target. They have unjust hiring practices. They, just, they do. I don't know how you buy things that are made in America. Good luck. I tried to do it one time. Couldn't afford anything. Couldn't even find stuff for like a kid's carnival. Crayola is made in America, some of it. You got to check the box. <laughs> so what we often do is we just, you know what I mean, we just give up and we just assimilate things. Maybe it's not in money and production, maybe it's food, right? I mean, not everything at Whole Foods is organic. <laughs> I didn't know if you know that. It's all expensive. It doesn't mean it's organic. Whole Foods is like food pornography. It's <laughs> sort of where you go and you're titillated by the most beautiful beats you've ever seen, you know? And, and um, it's, it's just difficult. I drive a Prius, it gets great gas mileage. The metal for the battery is extremely destructive for the world. I mean, this is just difficult stuff. You, you, you get what I'm saying about this. And um, we, just would, we just would rather assimilate because it's, you know, it's convenient. And this is the gospel that asks us to, to accommodate our, our lives around this stuff, and that's, that's vexing. Matthew does it more than Mark, I think, by the way. But this, this is parables. And this is why I think you hear something really unique to Mark, which is him saying to keep the gospel a secret. And that's because the people who want to share have got it wrong. Peter says he's the Messiah, but please understand, Peter clearly means Jesus is going to lead the troops onto the battlefield and wipe out Rome. And, and this is likely why Jesus says don't, tell people that because you're going to tell them the wrong thing and first impressions are real hard to overcome. I think that's right. And I think it begs the question, you know, when he's talking about us being witnesses for the good news, what is the good news? I took this class in seminary called ev evangelism, you know, and I really vexed the professor because all we did was talk about techniques. But I was like, what's, what's the, what is the content? Could we talk about the content? Oh, that's an advanced subject. So you want to talk about how to do it without saying what it is? That seems really backward, <laughs> you know? Because I would tell you at the end of the video, like, are we going to stand up for our faith? You know, I'm not sure in America that people need anyone to stand up on street corners for their faith with signs that say John 3.16. I think what we need is people to stand up for social justice, quite honestly. Because churches rarely do that. Is that okay to say? Well, and that's an interesting thing, isn't it? That's an interesting thing. And, uh, you know, uh, because maybe if we did it, people wouldn't like us. Or... Maybe. This is what I think is a really, is, is, this is a key question, right? In, in Mark, the only people that understand Jesus are the ones who are sick and unclean and unholy 
and possessed by unclean spirits, and the ones who understand him the least are the disciples. The disciples fail Jesus every single time. They never get him right. So who are the disciples today? This is what Mark asks us to consider. I, I mean it. Mark asks us to consider that. And do we assimilate Jesus or do we accommodate ourselves to him? How many of you, when you think of Jesus, think of somebody that is serene and peaceful? That's the picture on the flannel board. What about him with a whip whipping people up out of the temple? Or letting unclean spirits run a bunch of pigs off, off a cliff so that they drown? Those are not serene or peaceful images. Do you understand what I mean? We often forget that the people most offended by Jesus were the disciples. <laughs> now maybe their only metric of success is if they stayed around him. And this is all serious work for Mark. All serious work. Yes, ma'am. and angels, and feed the hungry, and all that business. Mm -hmm. Well, hard to say, right? I mean, obviously the high priest didn't think he's the Messiah. They think that'd be blasphemy. And why would it be blasphemy? Because he's, he's not acting like a king. It wouldn't be blasphemy that he were anointed to be king. It'd be blasphemy if he weren't acting the right way. The key is who makes him the Messiah, right? It's a woman. It's a woman. So some people do believe that. And there's this other question that we always have to ask. Are people in Mark coming to Jesus in their weakness because of their faith or because they're desperate? <laughs> and are faith and desperation different things anyway? Sometimes. So that's the gospel secret. That's theme number one, right? <laughs> the other theme in Mark is timing, and this was in a blog already too, probably about immediate. I actually was in here too. Everything's immediate. Everything happens really, really fast. And the book, I think, had a really good, good thought, which is, you know, sometimes uh, we put off to tomorrow what we could do today, which means we don't ever do it. Uh, Martin Luther is famous for having said, how often not now becomes never. So part of the immediacy of the gospel is the immediacy of the gospel. <laughs> that is, we shouldn't wait for penance or transformation. I think that's great. The other timing word, though, that Mark uses uh, was really an interesting sort of way to think about experiences in general is that there's two kinds of time in Greek. We only have one kind of time in English. There's two words. One is the word chronos, from which we get the word chronology. And you know, a great example of a, of a chronology, of course, is a timeline. I, I would put arrows on either direction, but time isn't unbounded, right? I mean, even biblically, there's some kind of beginning, whether you call that creation or the Big Bang. And there most certainly will be an end at least to our solar system. That's not surprising, right? The sun will rise out of hydrogen, and then it'll be real bad for the planet, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't think I'm mischaracterizing um, astrophysics here. T correct me if I am. Um, so, so time really is more like a segment than a line. 
and chronology is through years, and we, we learned to do that a long, long, long time ago, right? Chronology. B follows A, and C follows B. But Mark uses another word, um, and, and you see it from time to time. Like right after um, John the Baptist gets put in jail, Jesus says, the time is right, the kingdom of God is near, so repent and believe the good news. The time is right. Jesus uses this word kairos, not the word chronos. Um, kairos is about like the fullness of time. It's like these theologically rich moments. It's really kind of hard to explain that, except if I'd met my wife a year earlier than I'd met her, I wouldn't have been ready to meet her. The year before I met her was actually spent really uh, getting ready with, I mean, I just, I did some growing up. I'm not going to overemphasize how much I did, but I did sufficient growing up to be in relationship with somebody else. A year prior, I was not ready to do that. So at just the right time, I met my wife. Somebody this morning said, uh, was doing a favor for the St. Vincent's house, and they, they went down there with some shoes. And um, how interesting, uh, they just randomly sort of did it. They said, like, today is the day we need to go. And, um, and they got there, and the lady who received the shoes was just sort of crying. She was like, I just woke up so discouraged. I woke up at 3 in the morning, and I was just discouraged. And then you came in with all these new shoes. It was sort of like, oh, Mike, that's random. That's a Kairos moment because at just the right time, the shoes showed up for that woman. Does that sort of make sense? I think we don't even have to look carefully at these moments in our life. They're really easy to see in hindsight at just the right time. And, 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 and this is sort of Mark's, Mark's use of, of, of timing is that there's this sort of just rightness, these moments where, hey, maybe we had to wait for something, but the waiting was really all about preparation so that when it arrived, we would, we would be there. This is why we do Advent every year liturgically, if that sort of makes sense. Okay. Um, there was a one other thing that's really interesting about the failure of the disciples, because in, in Matthew, the first thing Jesus does is teach. He gets up and gives a Sermon on the Mount. In, in Mark, Jesus does a whole bunch of miracles first to justify that his teaching is worth listening to. And after doing all of these miracles, notice he comes walking on the water, and the disciples say, well, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. <laughs> well, he already did it. He stilled that storm, right? So, like, they didn't figure that out then. And, and he had that guy stretch out his hand in the synagogue and healed the hemorrhaging woman and necessitated the potentially dead girl, right? And they, they didn't get it. Again, th they just they didn't get it. Which means it's hope for us, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, which is, I mean, again, it's just really hopeful and in some ways, right, maybe, maybe one of the descriptions affirmatively is the disciples don't have to get it, they just stick around. There's a lot to be said for just sticking around. <laughs> Good friends stick around, you know. I mean, at a certain point, they don't always have to get it, but they just keep showing up, you know, and that, that means something 90% of the time, according to Vincent Barty. Uh, did, did I lose you thematically, or, or were there other points of engagement here? It doesn't make anything easier, all of this. And the goal is, like, why it's hard. 
Somebody asked me, um, sort of obliquely, how come Jesus didn't write this stuff down? And I do think it's important to remind you, he was probably illiterate. Muhammad, peace be upon him, was illiterate. I don't know if you know that. Muhammad, the prophet, peace be upon him, didn't write a single stitch of the Quran. He didn't know how to write. He recited it. You may be thinking, Jesus read from the scroll in the temple. Well, he was given the scroll, and he recited what was on the scroll. But you know in that Frederick Douglass example, it's possible he'd already memorized it. Does, does that make sense, what I'm saying? I would tell you that most little Jewish boys, when they turn 13 today, and they have their bar mitzvah, they've been practicing that passage for weeks. <laughs> So we don't know. We don't know. Okay. Um, I don't want to offer, I don't want to just ask really open-ended questions. Um, but I'm going to ask an open-ended question and ask having read Mark what impressions do you have about Jesus or what challenges you have different or similar to what you read in Matthew? Please. It's really a great question, and um, I don't have a definitive answer. I think one way we could read Mark, one way, is that Mark is written ar around either just before or shortly after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple when there is, like, there's persecution and problems going on. And it's very possible that Jesus addresses suffering so much because the audience is addressing suffering so much. Right, so why are we suffering? Oh, because Jesus did. Because it's possible, just like we read in Daniel. Right, Daniel was about be faithful no matter what the challenges are. God will deliver you, but even if God doesn't, we won't compromise ourselves. Right, that's, that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. Um, I think there's another possibility, and again, I'm sorry to ruin my own blog, um, <laughs> but I think... Um, Jesus says something really interesting, and we, I think we did talk about it last week. He sort of says, if you want to be my si disciple, take up your cross and follow me. And I'm not positive that Jesus is saying that we have to actually receive a capital punishment for committing insurrection against the Roman government. But I do think he's sort of saying that, um, and, and Martin Luther King and Gandhi were very aware of this, right, that, that when you walk the way of the cross, you can get killed. It doesn't mean you will, but it sure means the probability is dipped in that favor. So when you confront extreme social injustice and domination, 
and you refuse to be quiet, you should expect to suffer. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some funny examples. I'm going to tell you that back when I taught math at a fundamentalist Christian school, I was a math teacher, right? This is important for the joke. Have you ever seen that sticker on a car, blue and yellow? It's from the Human Rights Campaign. It's about having equal rights for openly gay and lesbian people. Um, I had one of those on my car, and the school was so fundamentalist Christian they thought it was an equal sign because I taught math. <laughs> so, so I didn't get in any trouble. And one day, one of the associate principals was like, why is that equal sign on your car? Is it because you're a math teacher? I was like, no, it's because I believe in you know, fundamental human rights for gay and lesbian people. And she was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... Listen, I mean, I didn't have a rough time because of that, because it was so cult. I mean, they had no idea what it meant. It was so beyond their awareness that that was not walking the way of the cross, if that sort of makes sense. But I do think there are certain ways that we can act that are walking the way of the cross. Now, sometimes people mistreat us because we're jerks, and that's not what Jesus is talking about, <laughs> clearly right? And sometimes, you know, we sort of know, you know, I think I've told you this before, like my youth group idea was smuggle Bibles into Russia because they'll kill you for that. And, and I just think that's probably not wise. You know, I just, I don't. Um, but, but I do sort of think that putting your, your reputation and um, in some ways, I mean, that might represent your life, but, but putting yourself at risk on behalf of other people's fundamental human rights is walking the way of the cross. I don't think, I don't think joining a million-person march in Washington, D.C. is walking the way of the cross. I don't, I just, sorry, I don't think so. There's very little at risk when you do that. Maybe it's a minor way, you know. Could be a start. I'm thinking people who got on the buses like Freedom Riders, that's the way of the cross. Did they all get killed? No, they knew it was a threat. There was a possibility, a real one, every time they got on a bus. Is it wise? I don't know. But I mean, I think that's part of the way of the cross, right? When Gandhi burned IDs of Indian people in South Africa because it was discriminatory and he got beat up, I think he knew exactly the odds where he was going to get beat up. So I, I think it's one of those key things, right, is about the nature of suffering. And I think it's really important to remember that I don't think God has any delight in suffering for its own sake. So I'm totally ruining my blog, you know, but it's one of those phrases like, well, I'll just go take up my cross. I'll just be nice to that person. That, that's not what Jesus has in mind. <laughs> I'll just put up with some minor inconvenience. I'm taking up my cross. And it's not what Jesus has in mind. <laughs> does, does that make sense? And I also know, because I've grown up in church culture, that there's people that are really sure that they're being martyred all the time. I'm just being persecuted by the church women and the Brotherhood of St. Andrews and the priest and the deacons, and everybody hates my ministry. Maybe you should stop it. I mean, I just, this, if, this is one of those things, right? Like, if no one's getting life out of your suffering, Stop. The goal of suffering is not a loss of life, it's actually an increase of life. 
And this is where I really love, love, love the Pelican iconography from Elizabethan England. It's wrong, you know, but it, it, it believes that a pel mother pelican would prick its breast and share its blood with its chicks during a time of famine. But the mom, see, didn't kill herself. She, she didn't ever, like, have the chicks eat her carcass because then the next day they'd starve, you see. She, she, she literally shared her life so that they could have life. So it's really about life sharing, not suffering, I think. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's a really good question, right? And, and of course, I don't, not beyond asking really difficult questions, like what if we decided crucifying Jesus was a bad idea and we didn't do it? Would we be better off? Sometimes. Well, no, I think the hard thing is, right, when suffering is glorified, then it means that we can impose it on other people. So, you know, there's been this really interesting outpouring since the 1960s in, in church academic publishing. I don't even say church, religious academic publishing. Um, first, it was feminist theology about, you know, is the way the Bible treats women at face value, is that all right? Like, is that life-giving? And then it was black feminists who were called womanists, right? Rereading cultural stereotypes and the way they were reinforced biblically have really questioned glorification of suffering because their story has been the bottom of the barrel. Tough being a black man, you try being a black woman. That's sort of how it goes, right? Glorified suffering. And, and I think that's where I think it's worth us thinking through. It's not the suffering that's being glorified, it's the life-giving. Or maybe it should be. The life-sharing. <laughs> is, that, is that maybe a... I'm still trying to iron the language out of my own head. Well, not in the Bible. That's a Baptist song. It is. No, it is. It's important to remember, and that's not in our hymnal. Let's pay, it, let's pay attention to the interpretation of Jesus' death as we keep reading the New Testament. I do hope you feel like it's very fair to say Jesus died from our sins. It's really strong, don't you think? <laughs> this is where precision is nice linguistically. But I will tell you this, 
Yeah, but I'll tell you that the Gospels don't ever make any theological claim about what the resurrection of Jesus means. Paul does that. The, the, the Gospels just talk about it happening, and notice in Mark, which is why you know that's where it really ended. You know that's the original ending because it's the worst possible ending. <laughs> but again, think how much we've tamed the resurrection. We wear Easter clothes and we take pictures in front of like a flowered cross and it's just wonderful and the original people are scared to death. I, I think it probably should be terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I had an experience going into a morgue last week. Somebody's sister had been hit by a transfer truck. I've never done this before. This is the weird thing about my job, which is why I like it. I just do weird things. You know, so somebody's sister had been hit by a transfer truck five days before, and they wanted to cremate her. And um, before they cremated her, they wanted me to anoint her with oil. So I went to the morgue to do this. And y y you know anointing with oil is something that you do for the living. Do you know that? So I hope it's really clear who the living were, her siblings, not her, right? So I anointed her for them, not for her, <laughs> right? And the body had been in the fridge, and it was 35 degrees, and, and I felt that when I touched her head, and I, you know, when her brother was kissing her on the head, you know, I mean, this is one of those sorts of things. And if she'd blinked, oh, my God, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> Do you She'd been dead like three or four days. I mean, that's a pretty relevant time frame to what we're talking about here, you know? I guess. What well, hasn't happened to me yet, I, and I don't need that surprise. I mean, I love surprises I can do without that one. Yeah, yeah. 35 degrees is a hard one. That's hard to come back from. <laughs> yeah, a little more temperate um, is, is better. That's probably right. Well, I, and we talked about this. This, m this is really good because in some ways this is really good. I mean, my, my brain's not so good at doing vastly different things. Um, <laughs> this is not. So, so why are they really out to get him? I, I think because uh, he represents a, a critique of their power, quite honestly. And people seem to share the critique. Yeah, a challenge to their status and authority and also to sort of their way of controlling the way religious, religious practice is supposed to work. So Jesus says some relatively subversive things. Quite frankly, it's almost like he's saying we don't have to do what the Bible says. The Bible says that if your donkey falls in a well on the Sabbath day, you let it drown because it would be work to pull it out. And Jesus says that's a no-brainer, like you pull the donkey out. <laughs> On any day, you know, because you'd be ruined economically if you didn't. So how much more, how much more shouldn't you help a human being and not wait because of any religious right? The point of religious rights is to connect with other people. I mean, that's really what Jesus is saying. The rights don't exist to please God. They exist for our sake to connect us with other people. So break the right and do the connection. 
Well, I think, sorry, that's very unepiscopalian of me to say, but I, but I think it's right. Well, he is anointed with oil, so he's a Messiah. I could make you a Messiah. I could pour oil on your head. Biblically, that would make you a Messiah. That's why the Romans killed them, yeah. That's why the Romans killed them. So remember I told you last week, the Sadducees and the Pharisees could have stoned him in the middle of the night and nobody would have cared. And Pilate, Pontius Pilate, contrary to the Gospels, was not a kind or compassionate man. He was ruthless and cruel. All the records we have are about Pilate doing really capricious things. Like one night he smuggles in images of the emperor and puts them up in the Temple Mount. He loses that one because all the Jewish people lay down on the ground and expose their necks and say, go ahead and kill us. It's really hard to explain to Caesar why 5,000 people were just killed who weren't fighting you actively. I mean, so that's, that's nonviolent social resistance that the Jewish leaders do, and Pilate backs down and pulls the images out. Uh, but somebody who's willing to do something like that, again, totally thoughtless of Jewish context, totally thoughtless, careless, because those peasants don't matter, did not give away charged insurrectionists on the Passover to appease the people. They didn't care about the people. You would never let somebody out of jail free who had been involved in overthrowing the government. <laughs> Am I saying the Gospels make it up? Probably, sorry. But why do they do it? Because the people pick this guy, which, as I told you last week, means son of the father. But they pick the wrong one. They pick the wrong son of the father. They pick Barabbas and not Jesus, the son of the father. It's definitely a, <laughs> a theological message about who we pick. They pick the Messiah that's the insurrectionist, not the one that, I mean, Jesus really says to Pilate, right? My kingdom's not of this world. But when Jesus, this all starts on Palm Sunday when Jesus goes and flips those money tables. Because that's kind of like a public thing to do. <laughs> it, it That's right. Part of it would be going to Rome. That's right. I mean, you, what Larry's saying, if you didn't hear in the corner, is, you know, especially during Holy Week when Jesus is preaching in the temple against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, 
right, criticizing their representation and understanding of right relationship with God and other people, that doesn't help his reputation with them either. And, and consider that he also sort of said things that the Romans wouldn't like. Is it right to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Whose portrait on the coin is it? <laughs> give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Well, what does that mean? It could mean a lot of different things. I think it's pretty clear what it means, <laughs> quite honestly. Uh, yes, ma'am. So, so keep in mind, right, that the foretelling of the Messiah is really, you can make that as spiritually significant as you want to, but really it's that an ancestor of David is going to rule over an independent kingdom of Israel. <laughs> That's a political reality. They want a restoration of political hegemony under the good old days. And that sort of started to get a little bit of popular embellishment that the Messiah would like fix all the problems, but the Messiah is the heir of David. Now remember the Gospels, Matthew goes to a little bit of pain to connect Jesus to David. But Jesus weren't related to David. <laughs> this is really important. Not at all. Joseph was, and Joseph's not his dad. If I said that in the Baptist church, that had driven me out with a pitchfork. But it's in the dang Bible, you know? I mean, we read it. Joseph's related to David, and Joseph's not his dad. There you have it. So, so is, is Jesus related to David? Figuratively, he is. Biologically, he's not. And, and Mark is less concerned with the biology than the representation. Matthew is less concerned with quoting scripture accurately than having Jesus resonate with it. I mean, this, that's kind of key, you know? And I think why all of this really matters, somebody this morning threw this wild question out, you may not want to bite on it, and it's fine, but they, they sort of said, well, well, I mean, if, if there's like questioning of scripture, then how do we know what's right? How do we know? And, and more particularly, right, if Jesus is the word of God instead of the Bible, what do we do with the Bible? I thought it was a great question. Because <laughs> you realize the Bible itself never calls itself the word of God, but calls Jesus the word of God. That's not a liberal read. That's how John reads, right? The Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's how I met Jesus, because the Bible never took on flesh, never did, right? It was took on page, right? This is, this is important, right? So, so how do we know when to disagree? <laughs> and, and, and isn't that a slippery slope? And, and the answer is, of course, it's a slippery slope, right? And the question is what the Bible's for. And does Jesus change the whole Old Testament? And of course, in his mind, not at all. <laughs> he has a conversation with the reason it was there in the first place. 
which was to guide us toward God and other people, and the people of his time were missing that. Jesus wasn't interested in starting a church. He was interested in like, being a good Jewish person. I think. <laughs> so how do we know what to do? And, and you know, um, this is a really, really good thing to say, and I think it's related in Mark, and I think it comes back to this question, right? I mean, these questions. If God told you to sacrifice your child, I hope you'd say no. I, do, I hope you'd say no. Well, Mike, that's what Abraham, God tells Abraham to do. Yeah, and I think he makes the wrong decision. <laughs> I just do. I think he's wrong. I don't think anybody should ever do that. Does that put me in disagreement with the scripture? Well, it doesn't. Maybe. Maybe the, the scripture, though, it describes not, who, not exactly what God tells us to do, but what we, we do do. And what we put God behind that, frankly, God's not interested in. And maybe this is Jesus' use of Scripture is to say, listen, we've got, we've got lots of different ways to read this. We can read the Sabbath as, as human beings were made for it, but that's not the deal, right? The Sabbath was made for human beings. So, so we don't keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath keeps us. I mean, that's, 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 that's how Jewish people understand the Sabbath to th this day. More than Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. And I think Mark is asking us to do this really difficult business about accommodating instead of saying, well, whatever, whatever the scriptures say, I'll just do that. Because you're all wearing blended garments. Cotton polyester blend, and that's biblically wrong. Like, that's not okay. So why is that one okay to disagree with? Because it's convenient? Or because it's reasonable? You, you, you know, I mean, this... Yeah, it's spirit versus the letter, right? Spirit versus the letter. And listen, we've all been in churches, and probably this one is like this that sometimes too, right, where the letter supersedes the spirit, and it's wrong. It's wrong. Okay, I don't want to belabor that point too much. But I do want to offer to you that um, I think that if you ever find yourself divided between what the resurrected Christ would do and what the Bible would have you do, you follow the resurrected Christ. <laughs> I, just, I just think that's like the point of faith. I think it's really critical. <coughs> um, okay, so, so should, we, should we look a little bit more in depth at Mark? Would that be okay? <laughs> I know I had a really, I had a great monologue today, I'm sorry. Um, I told you a couple of key things that are really interesting. When Jesus gets baptized, the heavens are ripped apart, like a piece of paper, torn like schizophrenia. That's the word schizo, like people who are torn between different personalities. Um, and of course, that frames the gospel. That happens when he's baptized, and it happens when he dies. This time, instead of the heavens, it's the, it's the, the veil, or the, the, the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from the other holy place in the temple. That veil uh, was so tightly woven, apparently it would have taken two teams of oxen, teams, like eight or 12 or something. You can read weird physical studies on this and bizarre religious journals uh, to, to rip it in half. 
and, and that's a nice, nice sort of framing uh, thing that, 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 that comes around. Um, there's this other interesting piece that happens throughout. Um, Jesus is amazed at their hardness of heart. The Pharisees' hearts are hardened when he heals on the Sabbath. When Jesus goes back to his hometown and he starts to try to perform miracles, they say, well, isn't this the brother of Joseph and James? Like, isn't that the carpenter's boy? You know, what what did he do? He went to the city and now he's going to tell us country folk how to live, you know? And Jesus says, only in his own town as a prophet without honor. And he's amazed at their hardness of heart because they won't even let him heal their sick. They're so hardened that they won't reconsider uh, somebody that they thought they knew. It's real preachy. You read it in a blog because we all have real hard hearts. We justify them, you know, but when we hear somebody's done prison time, we're not going to hire them. Because <laughs> once a prisoner always, you know, once you commit a crime like that, you know, they're just not safe anymore. We don't believe in rehabilitation. I'm raising my hand. When somebody's on Megan's list, we're not going to hire them. Didn't matter that they could have been 18 with a 17-year-old, and now, now they can't live within 500 feet of a school the rest of their lives. Right? We, didn't, we don't believe in second chances for some stuff because our hearts are hard. Mark's real preachy. You know, I mean, he's real preachy. Um, You know, there's that demoniac guy who lives in Garrison. He, he's, he lives in the tombs, and he's naked, and they chain him up, and he breaks the chains. And, and clearly, uh, he might actually live in the cemetery, but clearly this is a description, right, that he's a living person living like he's dead, right? He's, he's living a dead person's existence. And the town's scared to death of him because he, like, breaks stuff, you know? And then Jesus comes and cleans him up, and the town's even more afraid. Because <laughs> now, they don't know how to treat him. They're not, a, they're not scared because of the pigs. They're scared because, you've got to read it carefully. They're not scared because of the pigs. The, the swine herds are upset about their economic loss. The people are scared to see the demoniac dressed in, in his right mind. And, and, and see now, right, this is an interesting thing. You get used to misery, and at least you're used to it. <laughs> and, and sometimes we'd rather settle for the misery we know than for <laughs> something that could be different, you know? I mean, I think that's pretty true to life. And he says, Jesus, let me follow. And he says, no, you got to stay. <laughs> when you want to leave, right? I mean, they change you up naked in the graveyard right i mean i want to leave those people too <laughs> see how well scripture describes how we behave already i mean you know again this is just how we behave there's this neat thing sorry i'm ruining my own blogs i'll only ruin one more i know this because i wrote it like yesterday you know there's that lady who's been hemorrhaging for a long time it means that she's got like menstrual bleeding for 12 years. This is a wild story because she had money. She was able to hire doctors. And every time a doctor touched her, she got worse. And then she has no money left either. And no one's allowed to touch her because she's a menstruating woman. 
So if you touch her, you get unclean. You have to like sleep outside the city walls for 24 hours and perform the necessary oblations. So we don't know if the doctors even touched her or if they just cared for her. This isn't a story about medical malpractice, although you could make it about that, right? This is a story about a woman who's untouchable. And sure enough, in her illness, she spends all the resources, she gets worse, and she gets less and less touchable as she goes. And people at her time were pretty convinced that she earned it. Like the only reason she's bleeding and unclean is because she's a sinner. And she does something real bold. Is it because of her faith or because she's desperate? I mean, we don't know. She decides she's going to touch Jesus, which will defile him. It will make him unclean, and he will have to leave the city. And she does it boldly, like at Mardi Gras. That's the best time to commit a crime because the police will never catch you. Right? There's just too much going on. So the translation's actually real bad. It says, touches him on his cloak, and that's not where she touches him. Um, if you've seen Fiddler on the Roof, or if you know anything about Jewish folk, uh, Fiddler on the Roof is better than if you go to a synagogue. Um, there's this prayer shawl you wear, and it's called a talit. You only wear it for prayer, so you'd wear that Saturday morning, not Friday night. Um, and it's got on it some, like, fringes. Now, the, the talit today has more fringes than the one. That it just has the tas- tassels on the corner. And if you see the fiddler on the roof, they wear, it on a sh- on, they wear it as an undershirt, right? And these tassels hang low, and it turns out there's exactly uh, 613 little knots on the tassel. 613. That's how many commandments there are. Those are the mitzvot. So you become a bar mitzvah when you know the 613 mitzvot. There's 365 do's, one for every day of the year. And there's 248 don't commandments, one for every bone in your body. You don't have that many bones. Um, <laughs> but it sounded neat. So, so Jewish men wear this talit under their clothes as a sign of their devotion to God and their intention to keep the mitzvot. One of the mitzvot is you don't touch unclean women. So this is interesting. The woman doesn't touch his cloak. She touches the tassel, which in Hebrew is called the tzitzit. She touches the very thing that makes her unclean, the sign of religious piety that says she's no good. That's where she touches Jesus. And she knows she gets better. Now, how she knows that, we, d- we, don't, we, we don't know. I mean, she really would have had to be gushing <laughs> blood to figure that out. You know, it just suddenly stops. She, she touches it. And Jesus says, someone touched me. And his disciples, right, at Mardi Gras are like, of course somebody did, right? And, and here comes this crazy scene where he stops and investigates. And, and, and the woman ultimately comes forward. And she doesn't just say, I do it. She tells, according to Mark, the whole story. Why does she do it? Is she afraid that, you know, if she doesn't, Jesus will make her bleed again? Could be. Or does she trust that the person who was able to heal her is also able to hear her story? And, of course, the story says, I just defiled you. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well go. I mean, that's an interesting story, isn't it? Here's a woman who's been untouchable for 12 years, and she's just looking for 
the ability to touch somebody. And this happens on the way to Jairus' home where the daughter is presumed dead. And you can't touch dead bodies, you know this, right? That would make you unclean. So Jesus was just made unclean by a hemorrhaging woman, now going to touch a corpse. Jesus isn't afraid of people's uncleanliness. That's interesting to think about. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of precedent for that. But that might be why when Jesus messes with people, he doesn't just say things like, now you can see. He says, son, your sins have been forgiven. <laughs> so so I, that's, that's a really great question. But as I said, there's not a lot of precedent for it. Do you notice that Jesus comes into the, into the house and says, don't worry, your daughter's not dead, she's asleep. And all the people say, they laugh at him. Preposterous. But I don't know if you notice, Mark never says she's dead. Maybe she really was asleep. And people had written her off as being dead. There's no life in her. This is where this gets real preachy, don't you see, right? Because there's people we've written the life out of already. Bad investment, not worth it. They'll never change. They are no good. And I wonder if this story isn't about touching them and giving empathy and dignity in life. That's preachy. I think that's preachy, <laughs> which is why I think it's right. You know, anytime it challenges the way I'm living to give more life to people, I think it's the right interpretation, you know, if, even if it's wrong. Does, this, does, this, does that make sense? <laughs> you read that in the blog. Sorry, I haven't written all the blogs yet, so maybe I should skip ahead to what I don't know I'm even writing. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, and if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Of course, you know salt can't lose its saltiness. Like it either is or it's not. It's possible um, that Jesus is saying, I think I've told you this before a long time ago, you know what we consider salt is like Morton's, and it's made in a lab, and it's white, and it's little, you know, this Morton's stuff, and um, it's really cheap. You can buy a bottle of Morton's for like 78 cents, and at the time of Jesus, salt was expensive and it was mined out of the earth, which is why it's the root of the word salary, salt, salary. Needed it to live, hard to get sometimes. I know you're thinking, well, Mike, you could just reverse osmosis it out of the sea. Not then. <laughs> Not then. Uh, it wasn't chemically produced, it was mined. And the interesting thing about mining salt, right, is that it's a crystal and usually it varies widely in shape and color according to its trace minerals. Like if you've been to Hawaii, you know, there's black sand beaches where there's also black salt. And if you go to France, you can find the green salt, the cell gris. Hawaii also has red salt, and there's Himalayan salt, and it's pink. And what do you know, it all tastes different, too, according to the mineral that's in it. And I wonder, I had this nutty guy who was like a super genius. <laughs> he didn't ever sleep much, and he was pretty depressed. I think being smart must be depressing. So he, 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 um, he brought me this selection of salts one day and was like, you know, um, here's the salt of the earth. A and I wonder if, if, I don't think this is, I don't know if this is right, but I think it's really interesting. I wonder if we lose our saltiness when we confuse 
uniformity with unity. I wonder if the whole point of there being different salts, colors, and flavors is, well, the rainbow of flavor and diversity. And if we lose that stuff, I wonder if we have lost our saltiness, quite honestly. But there's another thought I had, too, which is, of course, salt, we know, is sodium and chloride together. And I suppose uh, when you split things apart is when you don't have salt anymore. So there's this thing we live in called denominationalism. And I'm going to take my toys and go home because you don't agree with me about everything. And I wonder if that's when we lose our saltiness. This is like the one thing about the Episcopal Church I'm really hopeful for because we're the, we're the one church I know of. Listen, we're better than everybody else. I don't mean it that way. But, you know, we're the one church I know of that sort of says we're not united in doctrine. We're united in worship. And that leaves a lot of room for sodium and chloride to hang together, you know. When we start becoming united in doctrine, it's really win or lose. And when you lose, you're gone. I think that's really hard to be united in doctrine and worship and not doctrine, right? It really takes a lot of accommodation because <laughs> it's really difficult when you're a gay person who believes in gay rights and the person in the pew to you, you know, is adversely opposed against, well, gay rights and you're both welcome at God's table. That's an interesting thing, isn't it? Of course, it would make us a lot like the disciples who categorically hated each other, Matthew the tax collector and, and you know, Simon the zealot. And the interesting thing about Jesus, right, is he got them to eat at the same table. And, and maybe that's actually a really good representation of what churches do, is they get diametrically opposed people to share meals together. Otherwise, salt loses its saltiness. I'll probably write a blog about that. <laughs> Because I'm really struggling. Okay. Um. We don't have a lot of time, so I don't know. Instead of me trying to scan through and pick something out, uh, was there any th anything particularly vexing or of interest for you, transformative this week, in our last few minutes? Yeah, this one's tough. So, you know, i got to tell you, um, I really, really don't approve of Jesus killing the pigs. And let me, let, me, let me back into that one as a way of talking about the tree. You, yeah, I mean, the pigs, they can't help it that they're unclean animals. You know, that Jewish law makes them unclean. And the reason they're unclean, of course, is because they're omnivores, and you can't eat omnivores. You can only eat ruminants. Uh, and you can't just eat ruminants, they also have a, have a split hoof, which is why you can't eat a horse, because a horse is a ruminant, but it doesn't have a split hoof. So it represents, well, a departure from the standard ruminant. Of course, it depends on how you set the standard, but the standard set it goats, sheep, and cattle, right? So the horse is kind of like them, but not enough like them, so you can't have it. And the pig has the split hoof, but it's an omnivore, so you can't have it. Not their fault, right? I mean, the swine herds were the ones making the herd. So um, when, the, when the unclean spirits get in the herds and drown them, and of course the name of the unclean spirit is legion for where many, there's really no doubt that Mark is really making a commentary on the Roman Empire who organized themselves into legions. <laughs> and... The legions are, of course, unclean swine who will be drowned, frankly, in their own chaos. 
I get that figuratively, but I still feel really sorry for the pigs. And I think that's probably good to hold on to because if Peter were around back then, they also would have not been happy. <laughs> All along the route on Palm Sunday, Peter would have protested. <laughs> I just think this is really fantastic to imagine. Now, the fig tree thing is pretty similar, right? Surf surface value. Jesus is on the way to the temple on Palm Sunday, and he goes to find some nutrition and some fruit on a fig tree, and there's not any. He goes to the temple and sees there's no nutrition and there's no fruit. He curses the tree. He curses the temple. In some ways, they're type scenes. Now, if we get bogged down in the details that it's not fig season, so Jesus is really unreasonable, I think we've missed what Mark's trying to do. And this is where it's important to remember that these Gospels aren't histories. They're written so you can believe good news about Jesus, which includes scathing social commentary against powers of domination, including religious ones. Um, but because the detail's there, I like to pay attention to the details, and it bothers me. But I'm positive that's what it means in Mark. And I'm positive Mark is not concerned about the, the pigs as much as he's trying to say that Roman imperial power is categorically unclean. It's like a swine. It's not to be consumed. It's not nourishing. You, s you avoid nourishment from that because it's ultimately chaotic like water is. Of course, if the President of the United States were there, he would have rescued all those swine. <laughs> he would have built a wall to keep those swine in. I, sh I should not have said that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Hey, next week, next week we will read Luke and pay attention as we're going through and how these stories really do have different emphases. Just heads up, you will not see gospel secret. You'll see Jesus hanging out with women a bunch. You'll see Jesus praying a lot, and you'll hear him talking about poverty, like real cash issues, a lot. Uh, so I will see you next week for Luke.